Pushkin. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab, hosted by the amazing Katie Milkman, behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. You can hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, historians, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to your shows. In a few weeks, my friends and I are traveling to see a once-in-a-lifetime event. On April 8th, we're headed south to check out the solar eclipse. And as usual, while we travel, my entire crew will be staying in an Airbnb. Staying in an Airbnb always makes me feel a bit more at home when I travel. But during this trip, I started to think more about what would be going on with my home while I was away. Because when you're away from home, your place could be an Airbnb. Lots of people stay at an Airbnb without realizing that their space could be an Airbnb too. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As a super busy professor, it's rare that I have time to truly get addicted to a new TV show or podcast. To be really binge-worthy for me, a new show has to be exciting, surprising, so captivating that I simply can't stay away. And since I really like learning new stuff, it usually has to teach me something important. And that's the reason I decided to share this special bonus episode with you today. Because I recently have become totally addicted to just such a podcast. It's a new show called Bad Women, hosted by the amazing historian Hallie Rubenhold. Bad Women is a show devoted to understanding more about the lives of the women who were murdered by Jack the Ripper. Now, from that description, you might be thinking, oh, this is some new true crime thing that Lori's gotten obsessed with. But that's not actually what the show is about. What Bad Women really tackles is the mystery behind why the Ripper's victims wound up in his path in the first place. What are the sociological factors that put them in harm's way? And what is it about our minds that prevents us from empathizing with these women and countless others who face poverty and injustice in the modern world? Today, I want to talk to Hallie about these mysteries and what they mean for our own psychology and even for our own happiness. I also wanted Hallie to tell me the strategies she uses to face these awful injustices head on. I wanted to understand how someone could study these dark topics and stay optimistic. Because that in particular seems like a strategy that we all need, especially nowadays. But before we jump in, I also wanted you to get a sense of the show and why it is so captivating and catchy. And so here's a quick listen to the Bad Women trailer. It's a bad habit we have. We tell the tale of the murderer and not the murdered. The clock on Whitechapel Church was striking half past two when Ellen Holland watched her friend Polly Nichols sway off into the darkness. Polly was drunk, penniless, and broken. She was inconsequential in the minds of most people she met, 
but she was about to cross paths with someone who would give her a grisly, unenviable place in history. In the autumn of 1888, Polly and four other women were brutally killed in a slum neighbourhood of London. Their unsolved murders were so violent, so cruel, that their killer earned a nickname that is still known the world over. I'm down on whores, and I shan't quit ripping them. Jack the Ripper. But in the greatest cold case in history, few of us have stopped to question the basic facts. One fact that you know about Jack the Ripper? That he never got caught. And who did he kill? Prostitutes. I'm Hallie Rubenhold. As a historian interested in the stories of women, I'd assume the lives of the five victims had been thoroughly researched long ago. I was wrong. When I dug into the records, I began to reveal rich and interesting lives. Most of the time, women leave if they're being beaten to a pulp or he put out an eye. Lives blighted by problems and prejudices most women today would recognize. There wasn't a great deal of sympathy for alcoholics. So one had to sign a temperance pledge saying, I will not drink. If only it were so simple. I identified with the women, sympathized with the tough life choices they made, and admired their determination. She gets on a boat and comes to England. She seeks wider horizons. I came to know them and like them. She wants more than she's been born into. But I also discovered something else, something new, something troubling. It was just so obvious to me the very first time I looked at this file. How could we have gotten this this wrong for this many years? And something that chips away at the foundations of the Ripper myth. Now I'm sure all of you here today do know that Jack's victims were ladies of the night, weren't they? They were prostitutes. The myth still served up by tour guides to visitors who flocked to the murder scenes each evening. And now ladies, you might be thinking, well, I'd never do that work, ever. But did it pay well? Sadly, the answer is yes. Polly, Annie, Elizabeth, Catherine and Mary Jane were not killed while selling sex. It was other, no less troubling factors that put them in the path of their murderer. In this podcast, I'll tell you how I know that and why it still matters very much, even today. Hallie has upset the world of ripperology by her general attitude towards ripperologists. I'll also explain why my research has enraged so many people who claim to be experts in the Ripper case. The attacks have just been relentless and malicious, but actually, I think they just don't really want other people talking about the murdered women and challenging their views in any way. If you want to know how we got the Ripper story so wrong, what those mistakes tell us about ourselves, and why putting the record straight makes some people so very angry. Join me, Hallie Rubenhold, for Bad Women, The Ripper Retold, starting October 5th, wherever you get your podcasts. So, Hallie, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. 
I mean, when I first heard that Pushkin was doing a podcast about the women who were murdered by Jack the Ripper, I kind of you had this assumption it was like the standard true crime podcast. And then when I listened to it, I realized that that's not really what the show is actually about. And so, you know, talk about this misconception. Well, it, yes. I mean, it is about a lot more than that. It's largely about the lives of the five victims of Jack the Ripper, which have been completely overlooked. And we look at a lot of issues that come out of their lives. So issues about addiction, for example, issues about homelessness, issues about violence against women, all of these things, because they're so integrated into the story and the way we tell the traditional story of Jack the Ripper. And one of the things that I found so striking about this is that all of these injustices you've just mentioned, you know, violence against women, you know, poverty, addiction, these are things that we're facing today. And they're the kinds of things that we just haven't really dealt with. And so without giving away too many spoilers, give me a sense of how some of these things played out in, in Victorian times and with some of the, the women who were the Ripper's victims. Well, I mean, people very much in the past were trapped in a poverty cycle similar to poverty cycles that people in the present are trapped in. So that if you were born into a family that doesn't have a lot of money, doesn't have a lot of resources, your opportunities in life are going to be very limited. And this was even more so the case for working class women in the 19th century Poor women didn't have access to education in the way that people of wealth had it, uh, or men. Uh, women couldn't actually make careers for themselves in the professions because the professions weren't open to women, because it was believed that a woman's only role in society was to be a mother, a wife, a carer. She wasn't a breadwinner. She couldn't have a life of her own. And because of that, if something went terribly wrong in a woman's life and she didn't have a man to support her, she had no way of earning an income. She fell into this poverty trap and had to rely on going to the workhouse, begging, taking very menial jobs that weren't designed to pay her very much. And so things were much more difficult if you were a woman. And so, I mean, these injustices you talk about, I mean, the workhouses just sound so scary and awful. You do such a good job of making them sound so terrifying in the podcast. But all of these injustices, the thing that I found most striking was the fact that all of these women face this kind of final injustice, which is they died at the hand of some horrible serial killer. And everyone thinks it was like their fault. You know, oh, they were just prostitutes or, oh, they were addicts and so on. So talk about this kind of final injustice, right? Yeah. In the Victorian era, the belief that somehow these women deserved what they got was part of a narrative which was designed to keep people in their place. So it was believed that bad women got what they deserved. So here were women who contravened the norm for what a woman was supposed to do in her life. These were women who had no families or they'd left their families behind. They didn't have a proper roof over their heads. They didn't have a husband to look after them or a father, and often they were reliant upon drink. They were failures as women, and because they were failures as women, it was believed, well, this is what happens when you're not a good woman. You get killed in a terrible, terrible way. And so basically this narrative propped up a lot of belief systems in the Victorian era at that time. The problem is that we have never really questioned this. 
And I think in a lot of mythologizing about the past, we just don't question these sets of ideas that we are really bequeathed. You know, we just repeat them. We parrot them. And in parroting them, we kind of acquiesce in a lot of the morality and the belief systems that preexisted, which are of no use to us anymore. And, you know, I would be lying if I said that we live in a society where it's not believed that bad women are the ones who get punished. Every time a woman goes out at night and is murdered, the first question that is asked is, well, why was she out? What was she wearing? What did she do to incur this? And that shouldn't be the question we're asking. The funny thing or the interesting thing for me as a psychologist is that the fact that we ask this question might be in part because of some of these biases of the mind, right? Like it's true that this kind of fit with the Victorian narrative at the time of kind of keeping women in line, but this might also just be a deep and pretty awful part of our human nature. Like it tends to fit with a couple of the psychological biases that we talk about in cognitive science. One of them, which is so interesting, is this bias known as the fundamental attribution error. And the fundamental attribution error is that even though when I think about my behavior, I usually try to explain it using specific situations like, oh, I drank too much because I was having a bad day or, you know, I forgot my keys in the car because, you know, I was like really stressed or something. When we look at other people's behavior, we assume that their behavior is the result of their personality traits or their moral traits, not situations, right? So if you had a friend, you know, a coworker who comes into work and says, oh, my gosh, you know, my car just got broken into. I'd left my purse in it. You might say like, oh, she's so absent-minded. Why would she leave her purse in the car? (laughs) Or like, oh, that's just kind of fits with her. Like she just doesn't treat her stuff well or something like that. You wouldn't think, oh, maybe her kid was sick or maybe she was really stressed or maybe she had a bad day, right? When you attribute other people's behavior to things, we don't tend to think in terms of the circumstances. We tend to think in terms of their personality traits. And I see this writ large in the stories you talk about, right? I just listened to your episode with Polly and it was kind of like, oh, well, Polly, you know, she's such a glutton and she liked to drink. And it wasn't like, no, Polly had these awful family issues. Like Polly had this horrible marriage. And so talk about what it's been like to bring those circumstances to light, knowing that people's natural tendency might not be even to think about them. It's really important to try to understand what the circumstances were that these people were coming from. This is where I think empathy comes in. And using empathy as a historian or any type of, I think, scientist is is sometimes frowned upon and people recoil at this because they think that you're putting too much of yourself into it. But that isn't the case. I think we can be empathetic and still be very impartial. But when we are telling human stories, when we are looking at human struggles, We must try and understand what the sets of circumstances were that allowed for something to happen. And this is so important because I think one of the things we know from cognitive science is that if you actually look at the reasons behind people's behavior, often it's not as much their personality traits or their kind of moral failings as we think. Often it's the situation. The whole history of the last few decades of psychology has shown us that hey, if you're in a situation where everybody's doing something, you're probably going to do it too. If you're in a situation where you just feel really horrible time pressure, right, you're going to act more immorally. We talk about this on my podcast in terms of feeling time famine causes you to do all this awful stuff. And if you're in situations of poverty, if you're in situations where you're in danger, like you're going to do things that you yourself right now, not in those situations, might not do. And so I think that there's this idea that we kind of morally condemn people for taking actions that we ourselves would have taken in those situations. And and the striking thing about bad women is it just articulates how awful some of these situations really were. I mean, 
Give me a sense of some of the things that these women were facing, like just on a day-to-day basis. Gosh, well, I think we really take for granted how easy our lives are physically. The Victorian era was absolutely terrible if you were poor. The living environment was terrible, often completely infested with vermin. People were physically uncomfortable all the time. You know, today we take a painkiller if we've got a headache, if something's wrong. You know, they didn't have access to that and and it didn't exist. So there is a certain level of ambient pain all the time. A lot of these women we know had diseases. Annie Chapman had tuberculosis. Catherine Eddowes had kidney disease. Elizabeth Stride, for example, was suffering from tertiary syphilis. And the circumstances of their lives were so awful, so bleak, so without hope, that of course they're going to be drinking to forget as well. And hunger. I mean, these people did not know where their next meal was coming from. They didn't know what was going to happen really from hour to hour, where they were going to be laying their head. One of the most evocative things about your podcast is like the smells is like poop everywhere and it's like stinky. It's such a, I mean, honestly, it's actually such an evocative part of your podcast. It's actually like takes you there in this wonderful way. So it's so funny because I'm so immersed in it. I don't, it's so normalized for me that. <laughs> no, it's true. A, wait a minute. Yeah. Wait a minute. Everybody has chamber pots. They're just like poop at people's bedroom. Yeah, like, what yeah the hell? absolutely. Like, I mean, yeah. honestly, if, even if I was just facing like the stench of feces all the time, I feel like I definitely would start drinking. <laughs> and, was, unwashed like, human bodies as well. A lot of times people did not have access to laundry facilities, to bathing facilities. You know, and sometimes when they had access to bathing facilities, it was cold water. So people smelled terrible. And the fact that these women were going through so much pain, I think, leads to the the next bias that I see so much in, in your telling of these women's stories, right? The next psychological bias, which is what researchers call the just world bias. And so the idea behind the just world bias is we would like to assume that the world is a just place, that, you know, good things, like truly awful bad things don't happen to good people, right? And that if we ourselves are good, if we work hard and do the right thing, we can live a life filled with joy and pleasure and these kinds of things. These are deep beliefs that like keep us getting up in the morning and not kind of terrified about what the world is. And what that means is that it makes us do good things, right? Like it makes us fight injustice. It makes us be good people because we don't want to get our comeuppance. We kind of want to believe that if we do the right thing, you know, good things will happen to us. But it also leads to this insidious rationalization, which is like when you see a bad thing happen to a person, your first instinct is to assume well, you know, maybe there was some reason there, right? Like maybe it just didn't happen by chance. A friend tells you like, oh my gosh, my sister just found out she has liver cancer. Your brain instantly goes to, there must be some reason that this is a just dessert, right? That, you know, the world doesn't work by making terrible things happen to people. There should be some reason there. It's like, well, I wonder if she like drank too much or didn't take care of herself, right? And this I saw just writ large, not just in your women's stories, but just in how people reacted to the fact that you were humanizing them and telling their stories. And so does this kind of resonate, this kind of just world bias, the kind of thing you saw in the retelling of these stories? I mean, it's very current with the murder of women. So in the United States, Gabrielle Petito, what was going on? What was she doing? What was people were asking those questions? You know, what did they do to deserve this? You know, the belief being, of course, that they brought it on themselves. We are so far from actually taking that step back, not asking those questions, but just reserving judgment, 
and listening and examining the other factors that were at play here. But what's triggered, it seems, is this kind of knee-jerk response about women being at fault for their own murders. So, for example, you know, here I am coming in and saying that actually the story that you know about Jack the Ripper, it wasn't these women's faults that this happened. By changing it, people get very upset about that because they're clinging to this belief system that's still with us today. And and it really seems to be a belief system that, well, first of all, there's evidence that it might be really ingrained in the sense of emerging really early. In fact, there's evidence that even little kids show this uh, you know, belief in a just world bias. Um, in fact, if you tell little kids kid versions of the stories, we wouldn't talk about you know Jack the Ripper and serial killer murders to little kids, but simple things like Joe was walking to school and he got pooped on by a bird. The kids will start justifying, well, you know, maybe Joe did something wrong or he's a bad person, right? He can't just be unlucky. There has to be some reason for this, right? And this emerges in four-year-old kids, so it makes sense that it's still with us as an adult. But another thing we know about this bias is kind of exactly what you said. This is a knee-jerk response, right? This is some unconscious thing our brains do really fast. And one of the powers of this is that our brains start unconsciously looking for evidence that there might be some reason in there, that it's a just dessert. You know, like with the cancer example, you're like, I wonder if she drank. Like, you don't know anything about this sister. Like, you're just like making stuff up about her because you assume there has to be something there. And that means we go through just a ton of mental gymnastics to keep these distortions up. And I think, you know, you've seen like these mental gymnastics at work, you know, so talk about some of the challenges you've faced from people who are like, no, 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 you're just getting these women's stories wrong. Some people, it's some people, not all of the people are incredibly nasty and incredibly vicious with what they say. I mean, there is this investment in this story. You know, this is very personal to some people who feel they've invested their <laughs> their lives in researching Jack the Ripper. And here comes this person from the outside saying, well, actually, this evidence that you always assumed was true isn't actually true. And it's not true because of this, this and this. And so the only way, instead of actually taking that on board, the only way they can process what it is that I've written is to say that I've lied, that I've hid evidence, that I'm dishonest, that I'm a pathological liar. And that's the only way that (laughs) they could actually carry on with their biases. That really surprised me. Yeah. Human minds kind of suck, as we say a lot yeah. on our podcast. And and this is, you know, when things challenge our core beliefs, it's amazing how much effort we'll go through to kind of rationalize that. Mm. But I mean, I get this too occasionally, right? Like I'm doing a podcast on happiness and I occasionally get critics who say, you know, my voice sucks or I'm dumb or how dare I, you know, mention this particular thing, right? Or how dare I not mention someone in like X circumstance when I know we have an episode coming up about X circumstance in like three weeks if they just waited. What what does that kind of critique feel like to you? I know what it does to me. It just feels awful. You know, how have you kind of processed it? (laughs) I've tried to process it with empathy, actually, and actually reasoning myself through it, which is, look, people want to be angry. By being in public life at all, you're going to be a lightning rod for everybody's issues. And a lot of people who attack you, it's their issues. It actually almost has nothing to do with you. And I see that as a kind of way to navigate through some of this real nastiness. But at the same time, it's like being a little boat on a rocky sea. You know, you're just trying to find that even keel. 
that takes a lot of energy. Yeah, it can be really exhausting. And I think a particular feature of the kind of trolling that you've been getting is that my understanding is that most of it happens online. Right? It's not like these people see you, you know, in a shop and say, hey, Hallie, face to face, you know, here are my critiques about your podcast. It's kind of this short character length anonymous tweet on the Internet. Right. And this is something we also know scientifically is that the Internet takes away our face to face interactions, like our natural empathic urges come up when we're talking to people face to face. Right. And that's one of the reasons that people can be so mean online is that the normal empathic urges that would creep up, like I shouldn't say something so harmful to someone. You know, it doesn't feel like you're saying it to a person because you're doing it on the Internet. On, on the Happiness Lab podcast, we had my colleague Jamil Zaki, who studies empathy directly. And he talks about how he, he worries that the Internet in general is, nat- is undermining our natural empathy. And I think that this is especially true in this space of kind of trolling and things. But one of the reasons I love your podcast so much and one of the reasons it's been fun talking to you today is I can see your natural empathy kind of shining through, right? You know, these are people who are saying really hateful things about you and you're like, well, I'm trying to have empathy for them. This is the kind of thing that I think can be so powerful about a podcast like yours, right? Is it's kind of like naturally allowing us to sort of flex our empathy muscles. If we can empathize with some women who died many, many years ago, who've been in circumstances who are very unlike ours, it's kind of a way to kind of boost our empathy for other people today. I mean, have you found that, you know, really understanding what it was like to be these women in awful circumstances has like helped you empathize more with people today? Absolutely. I mean, writing so much and researching so much about female homelessness. And one day I was just walking down the Strand in London and walked by a woman, I'd say like maybe early 30s, and she had a child with her who was about seven years old, and she was begging for money. And I just stopped, and I was so overwhelmed by looking at her and thinking, my God, you could be any one of these women I have just spent so much time with. And I stopped and I talked to her and I gave her some money. And she told me a story about how she fell into arrears on her rent and her landlord threw her out with her child. And I was staggered because this was literally a story right out of the 19th century and right there, right in that same place. And so I think writing about these women, well, writing about poverty, writing about individuals' experiences really makes you see more of the universal human experience. And I think this is one of the powerful things about listening to these historical stories, right? You know, you had that experience with you know, the homeless woman. But I'll be honest, like, actually, the same thing happened. I binge listened to a lot of your show when I was on a long drive. And when I finished my drive, I parked my car and I was walking back to my house. I ran into someone who was homeless, this homeless guy who was asking for some money. And, you know, he's a guy who's often on that same street corner. And after listening to your show, I kind of not only gave him money, but did the same thing you did, which was like, spoke to him for a couple of like, how's your day? Like, how are things going? And I was compelled to do it because, you know, now he wasn't just someone I was walking by. You know, this was a human who could have been me. Right. It's, it's this idea that like, you know, you tend to see this not as just, oh, this is an other, but really this is someone that I have connected with in this interesting way. And so have you had other people who've had this reaction to kind of listening to your podcast where, you know, they're getting a sense of experiencing more empathy afterwards? Yeah, people are telling me that, you know, they're crying as they're listening to it. I mean, my my feeling is good, good. We need to connect. We need, it's so, so important. You know, human experience, understanding human experience, 
is so fundamental to understanding ourselves. And I worry sometimes with a lot of true crime, we tend to focus on the story of the perpetrator. We don't focus on the stories of the victims. And victimology is not as seen as sexy as suspectology. And ironically, you know, you mentioned listeners crying, but that those tears are actually a path towards well-being. This is something we know from the research, right? That connecting with other people, empathizing with other people, even if they have stories of pain, can sometimes make us feel more socially connected. They can ultimately lead to us helping other people, you know, giving, you know, the dollar to the homeless person. And then that can allow you to feel better. Right. So ironically, kind of connecting to other people's pain is actually a path to happiness. The problem, though, is that it doesn't like feel great in the moment. (laughs) And I think that's what we're going to tackle when the happiness lab returns in a moment, which is when you compassionately embrace the suffering of other people, it kind of sucks. And so what are some strategies we can use to deal with the injustice of the world, to face it head on, but to protect our well-being when we do it? That's what we'll talk about when the happiness lab returns in a second. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to find the right professionals for your team, faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn knows that some small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. So they're constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a new feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com THL. That's linkedin.com THL to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. In a few weeks, my friends and I are traveling to see a once-in-a-lifetime event. On April 8th, we're headed south to check out the solar eclipse. And as usual, while we travel, my entire crew will be staying in an Airbnb. Staying in an Airbnb always makes me feel a bit more at home when I travel. But during this trip, I started to think more about what would be going on with my home while I was away. Because when you're away from home, your place could be an Airbnb. So why not consider becoming a host yourself? Because if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you pretty much have an Airbnb. Hosting is a great way to earn some extra money. Plus, hosting is a lot easier than you might think. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm embarrassed to admit that 
even as I started listening to your podcast, I just assumed that the five women were, you know, prostitutes, drunkards, you know, people that we could have written off. Right. And it, it took me some work to really listen to their stories and kind of come to terms with the fact that, you know, they were just like me. You know, it wasn't this kind of thing that I can just kind of write them off. Like I have to have empathy for them, too. And I think that that sort of fits with a lot of people's experience. Right. When you finally start empathizing with a person who's going through pain, when you start finally empathizing with a person who's going through tough times, you you feel better. It feels good. It feels like you're enacting justice. You feel more connected to this person. And so one of the strategies I like to suggest to my students who want to promote their empathy is to really take time to like work to see things from other people's perspectives, to like work to see things from other people's circumstances. And so, you know, talk about how history does that for us and how you've been able to do that with these women's stories. I am a social historian. And so the type of history that I examine is really the nitty gritty of human experience in the past. And I think that automatically brings you into a place of empathy. Because when you understand the granular details of what it meant to be alive in a particular time and place, you suddenly see things very differently. And I think that's one of the important things about history. You know, psychologically, we often think that empathy involves sort of perspective taking, right? Where I just kind of, you know, sit from my modern environment with no, you know, chamber pots or feces around. And I think, oh, what must it have been like, you know, to be, you know, a woman then? And often that perspective taking is kind of wrong, right? Because I haven't thought really through the circumstances and that's why a lot of the science suggests that a better way to empathize is through perspective getting, right? You literally ask people what are their stories, right? Which I can do in the modern day. I can interview someone who has a different circumstance than me and ask what that circumstance is like and hear it directly from them. And I think that's the power of the historical approach is ultimately, you know, what social historians have to do is to like find those narratives, you know, even if it wasn't a journal, right? Like find those circumstances and really pull out what would their perspective have been, you know, given these circumstances. And I think it can be really powerful because you're like, oh, when I perspective take, I was like, well, I wouldn't be out on the street at night, you know, to get murdered. But then I'm like, oh, actually, <laughs> when I get their perspective and see what it's really like, I think really quite differently. Yeah, exactly. And and that is really important. It also, when you understand other human experience, both in the past and the present, of people you know, of people you don't know, it helps you become a more empathetic person. It helps you see things you wouldn't normally see. And I'm a real evangelical when it comes to promoting social history as, as the way forward in historical study because it tells us so much about the present and it helps us unpick so many of our habits, so many of our bad habits and so many of our belief systems. And it helps us weed through you know, what can we use today and what belongs in the past still? It also allows us to kind of build up our compassion muscles. I mean, there's tons of evidence showing that, you know, compassion is kind of a skill that we can build up over time. Right. But it takes some practice. And that practice really does involve thinking through the bad things that are going on with other people. You know, there's evidence, for example, that it involves actively trying to wish well and give compassion to people who might not be so nice to you, our critics, our internet trolls, people who say mean stuff. The research shows that these are muscles that we can build up. And it, it sounds like this is something that you've been working on, too, especially when it comes to some of the online critics and some of the haters, too. As much as um, I find it annoying and irritating, and actually some of their, the things they say is just so ridiculous that it's laughable. You know, and I do laugh at these things. But I think 
I have tried to understand, you know, where are these people coming from? I've tried to understand why there's so much hatred. You know, whether or not they would ever be as kind to me, I think is kind of irrelevant. I think when we want to understand somebody and we want to understand a problem, it's always good to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, try to figure out where they're coming from. And I think in many ways that sort of sometimes takes a lot of the poison out of what you see being aimed at you or um, the way you see any particular situation. Yeah. On my podcast, we talk with the meditation teacher, Tara Brock, and she told this story or metaphor where when you're walking by, you know, a dog that's kind of barking at you and you go to pet it and it sort of snaps at you and snarls, you could be like, oh, what a, you know, what a jerk, this horrible dog. But then you look down and you might notice that the dog's foot is in a trap or that it's hurt. Right. And that gives you a completely different emotional perspective on this on this creature, right? Now you're not dealing with another agent who's mean and awful and trying to be a jerk to you. You're dealing with this person who's hurt. And it so instantly turns on compassion. And it sounds like by taking the perspective of some of these folks who are kind of haters of some of your work, you've been able to do a little bit of that. You know, they're, they're barking dogs, but they're barking dogs who might be hurt to some extent. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think I would, I would also point out that constantly taking that position can get really emotionally exhausting also where you are always, what ends up happening, I I sometimes feel, is that you end up doubting your own position because you're giving so much of yourself and so much of your empathy out to other people. And I think for me, and certainly maybe this is even a question for you, is how do you draw the line? Where are are the boundaries? Yeah, well, one of the things, you know, we we learn in compassion research is that there can be this compassion fatigue. And so using strategies like literally almost like you go to the gym and do squats to like build up your leg muscles, like using strategies to literally build up your compassion muscles can be quite powerful. And one of the ones you see in the research is a technique called loving kindness meditation, which sounds really cheesy, but it's a meditation practice where you like literally sit and extend compassion to other people. The prompts are usually think about someone who's really close to you and say, may you be happy, may you be well, may you be safe, may you find joy, right? Which if you do it right, can kind of give you a sense of compassion. Sometimes people report feeling something warm in their heart or in their like heart space. But then what the practice is, is that over time, you kind of extend that compassion and that loving kindness to more and more difficult people, you know, maybe like a stranger. And then ultimately, you know, for me, like that guy who made the super mean comment on Twitter about the podcast, right? You know, may you be happy. May you be safe. May you find joy. Right. And what the process does is, first of all, it allows you that feeling of that emotion to extend to that person. But then it kind of gets you naturally to do the thing that I think we were just talking about, which is like, okay, what's their perspective? They're just a human who's trying to find joy, who's like getting through it the same way we all are, where they're kind of figuring it out as they go. And so it it can be a powerful practice. But what the evidence suggests is that practices like that can reduce the thing you're talking about, which is sort of compassion fatigue or, or sort of burnout fatigue, especially in careers where you have to really be empathic. And so the studies have been done in people like palliative care workers and first responders but I think social historians who are dealing with the deep injustice of the world could probably benefit from some loving kindness meditation, too. Yeah, I, I, I think I think you're onto something there. <laughs> and, and another strategy I think we talk about on the podcast a lot is just 
you know, finding ways to regulate your negative emotion, right? I mean, I think this is true for the online trolls, but I imagine as a social historian, it's more true for like, you know, facing the injustice of the world head on. You know, there's a reason we have this just world bias because it sucks to realize that terrible, terrible, awful things can happen to people who don't deserve them, right? And that comes with a deep sadness. It comes with anger. It comes with frustration. And so we need ways to regulate those emotions. And, you know, the science shows that the way we do it is to actually sit with them. You know, Tara Brock, who I mentioned, has this lovely practice that she calls RAIN, which is a meditation practice, R-A-I-N. You recognize the emotions that you're experiencing, you allow them, you investigate what they feel like in your body, and then you kind of do something to nurture yourself. And there's lots of evidence that those kinds of practice where you kind of recognize, oh, I'm feeling really frustrated by, you know, the fact that the world is so unfair. I'm feeling really sad about what happened to these women back then and what happens to women today. You kind of allow those feelings. You say, I'm just going to sit with them and then let them play out in your body. And and that's because the research shows that emotions are kind of like like a wave. You know, it's going to go up and you feel more and more frustrated. But then you sit with it over time. It's just going to dissipate. It's going to do something. But then you do the end, which is something to nurture yourself, which is like it's exhausting to deal with the injustice of the world is exhausting to deal with online haters you know what can you do that's really nurturing to kind of take care of yourself so sounds like practices like rain might also be you know a good thing for social historians to invest in to kind of get through some of the yucky stuff out there yeah i think that sounds really useful for anybody who is is surrounded by really unpleasant stuff all the time and i was even going to say you know this day and age we're living in right now with covid and how the news cycle can be extremely overwhelming. And, you know, every day when the numbers of people dying are published, that's really quite overwhelming. And I think that sounds like a really good strategy, really, for all of us. And so I think this is a nice way to end, you know, and one of the reasons I was so happy to talk to you, you know, our, our natural instinct, our brain's instinct is to pretend that bad things don't happen to good people, right? There just must be bad women, right? There's not bad things happening to good women. There's just bad women. It just simplifies things. And it's so one of the reasons I've loved how much your podcast has kind of brought to light, like, hey, these are biases, you know, we need to kind of deal with them and empathize with people who are going through some tough times, you know, but also that the science of happiness maybe can give us some good strategies to deal with our emotions as we do that. Um, Hallie, thank you so much for chatting with me today. This was awesome. Thank you, Laurie. It's been really enlightening. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn knows that some small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. So they're constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a new feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com THL. That's linkedin.com THL to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Science suggests that both physical health and mental wellness are keys to happiness. 
and San Diego has the perfect formula of sun, sand, and easygoing vibes to lift your spirits. The people are welcoming, the scenery is beautiful, and there's a ton of fun experiences wrapped up in a small beach town feel. A trip to sunny San Diego can help you rest, recharge, and hopefully return to life feeling reinvigorated. Find your happiness at sandiego.org today. Funded in part with City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com.